Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The scribes and the Pharisees seem to be the group that everybody loves to hate, don't they? Whether it be the scribes and the Pharisees that are described for us here in the Gospels, or those that we consider Pharisees in our own spheres of life. Those who seem to imitate and emulate and speak like and judge others like the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day did. We'll even use the word Pharisee, right, as an insult against those who have the audacity to tell us what to do and how we should live. Someone comes to you and says, hey, maybe you should be a little holier in this area. Pharisee! I can't tell you how many times I've heard the word Pharisee hurled at another because the so-called Pharisee exhorted a fellow believer to repent of their sin, to obey God's word, to live a life that is holy and separated unto the Lord. Let me just say from the outset, as we move forward, the Pharisee is not the godly person who pushes you for and entreats you and others to live holy and righteous lives. The Pharisee is the exact opposite. It is those by whose those who by their teaching and example, as verse 13 tells us, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And in verse 15, when they disciple others, they make them twice as much a child of hell as they themselves are. So let's get a little bit of background on these Pharisees so we can kind of understand who they were, where they come from, how they got to be what they are in Jesus' time. Who were these Pharisees that brought and what brought them to the place where Jesus thought it necessary in Matthew 23 to pronounce this series of condemnations upon them? And in what ways might we, you and I, actually be like these Pharisees today? So you see, the Pharisees actually sprung up after what was called the Maccabean Revolt, roughly 160 years earlier, 160 years before the birth of Christ. These were the spiritual descendants of another group called the Hasidians, and the Hasidians were those who stood up and fought against the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was a kingdom that was bent on subjugating Jewish peoples and eliminating Jewish religion in order to establish in its place paganism in the city of Jerusalem. And it got this way because at the death of Alexander the Great, He'd never actually named the successor to take his place and to reign over the vast land holdings that he'd accumulated during his warrior life and exploits. And so after much warring and fighting it within the, the actual empire, the Greek empire, it ended up being divided into four separate parts. One of those parts was the Seleucid Empire, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, rest in or lay in the Seleucid Empire. And the ruler of the Seleucids, he was an ambitious man. And he wanted to see his name in lights. He wanted to see his name placed alongside Alexander's as one of the stalwarts in history. And he thought the best way to accomplish this feat was to turn the Jewish world into a Greek world. And so he tried to take over, he tried a number of different things to accomplish this goal. First, he tried to take over the high priesthood at the temple by bribing the priests to start becoming more Greek in their way of operating in the temple. Secondly, he built a gymnasium near the temple. Now, in our day, we're like, we got a gymnasium in the church. But in this day, it was way different because... In the Greek world, if you went to a gymnasium for sports or to watch sports, there's a little bit of a difference between our gymnasiums and theirs in that when you went to theirs, you had to enter in naked. Big difference. And this was strictly forbidden by the Jews according to their law. For a Jew to enter or to attend a sporting event at the gymnasium or to take part in a sporting event meant they violated their own biblical law something the Seleucid ruler knew well. And so he actually mandated that all citizens throughout his empire attend the gymnasium at least once, and by so doing, he thought he could get the Jews to violate their faith and religion. But things were taken to the next level 
when the ruler of the Seleucids actually entered into the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple, which is the center of Israel's religious life and religion, and he vandalized it. How did he vandalize it? First, he offered up a pig on the altar. And then he set up a, a pagan idol on the altar in the temple. And even more, he took the Greek gods and pagan gods and set up altars to them in every single one of the small villages and towns all around Jerusalem. And he commanded the Israelites that they must convert from Judaism to paganism or else they would be put to death. That's a lot of rules and blasphemies all committed by this one man. And eventually things reached a boiling point and the Jewish peoples revolted. And the Seleucid king initially thought, ah, this will be easy, so he sent a small army to deal with the rebellion, but the Jewish freedom fighters actually easily crushed this small army of men. And so now this Seleucid king looks weak. And so what does he do? He calls his greatest general, Lysias, and sends with him 60,000 soldiers battle-hardened soldiers to massacre and eliminate the Jews once and for all. And they came against the Jewish fighters and the Seleucid army outnumbered them five to one. Five to one. Those are some uh, bad odds if you're a Jewish freedom fighter. But those Jewish freedom fighters, praying to the Lord for help, praying to the Lord for strength, ended up getting the better of the Seleucid army and obtained what could only be considered a miraculous and impossible victory. Their victory over the Seleucids was so decisive that they could not gather together another army to make any more real attacks on them. They were driven away. The Jews had won the victory. And so they returned to Jerusalem. They cleansed the altar of, it, of its pagan defilements. They knocked down all the altars that had been set up and established throughout the city of Jerusalem. And they established a celebration, established a feast, a festival, a memorial to this event that is still celebrated by the Jewish peoples today called Hanukkah. And during this phase of reestablishment of Jewish life post-Seleucid victory, the scribes and the Pharisees emerged from this time as those who were dedicated to the restoration of Israel's full-fledged obedience to the law. In these early years, they knew that God had won them the victory. As God has always done for His Hebrew peoples, He won them the victory. And so with noble intentions, these early Pharisees hoped to lead the people of Israel back to covenant faithfulness to God, because they knew well the call of the Lord through people like Zechariah, for example, who we read about. The Lord says this through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 1 of his prophecy. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the Lord. See, the early Pharisees, committed as they were to seeing Israel return to true worship of the Lord, took these words seriously, and they labored among the people with the goal of seeing a full-scale national repentance. But now, fast forward 160 years, things have changed, right? They've changed rather dramatically. See, the Pharisees over time had transformed from being this group supremely committed to Israel's holiness into a proud, self-serving, self-protecting group whose example produced and promoted the exact opposite of their original goal. And that's because in many ways these men carried a burden, they carried a task, they carried a weight that most people, in fact all people aside from Jesus Christ, aren't meant to bear by themselves. A weight that left unchecked, left without any accountability, without anyone to challenge, without any reminders to them about their need for humility, would, le would lead them to heightened arrogance and heightened pride. I mean, we see this in our own day, right? Anyone who has been rich and famous and influential for a long period of time, chances are they're just weird. Think about famous people. I, I, I was watching something the other day and I saw one 
famous woman who's been famous since she was 18. She's now 70, and she's still showing herself off in a way that is just weird. And nobody around her is willing to say, like, you're 70, put some clothes on. There is this delusion that arises in people who, have, who bear this weight of fame and glory for this long without anyone checking them, checking their pride. And in the case of the Pharisees as a group, they developed an almost unchecked pride of position in a nation of Israel for close to two centuries now. Externally speaking, if you looked at the Pharisees as an Israelite, you'd say, these men do everything right. They fight for the right cause, historically, in the Seleucid battles, and presently, for Hebrew freedom to worship the Lord in Rome. These men gave large amounts of money to the poor and the downcast and the oppressed in Israel. These are the men you look at, you might look at and say, wow, these guys have it all together. Look how close to the Lord they are. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, the Pharisees had grown, had grown so large in their own heads, so convinced of their own righteousness because of everything they did, because of all they knew, because of everything their ancestors had accomplished, and by comparing their lives of meticulous practice with that of the general populace in Israel, and in their own minds, they came out on top. We can always find someone to compare ourselves with where we come out on top, right? And the Pharisees made this, took this to an art. And so slowly but surely their hearts festered with the toxin of pride until that poison deadened their hearts to the Lord fully and completely. They were so completely wrong. And so dead internally, as Jesus tells them in these seven woes. But while being dead, they convinced themselves that they were righteous. These men were in the most dangerous of predicaments. Their souls standing, teetering on the precipice of eternal damnation, all the while convinced that they are God's favorites. And as we work through this series of criticisms of the Pharisees by Jesus, we're going to see a number of qualities that were inherent to them that we must also obtain, abstain from if we hope to avoid following in that same error. A few examples we'll note include the Pharisees were those who said all the right things but didn't practice what they preached. The Pharisees were those who lived out their faith in order to be seen by everyone else around them. Not because they loved the Lord, but because they wanted everyone to look at them and say, wow, look at that. The Pharisees, by their example and by their leadership, didn't lead people to the kingdom, but actually obstructed people's path to repentance and faith in the Lord. The Pharisees were those who added their own ideas, their own traditions, their own convictions, practices, and opinions to the Word of God, and then upheld those and maintained those and spoke about those practices as though they were on par with the Word of God, and sometimes they're even more important than the Word of God. A practice that Paul rebuked in his letter to the Colossians when he wrote this in Colossians 2, verse 21, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but listen, they are of no value. They are of no value. The Pharisees also defended, justified, hid, and covered their sins instead of confessing and repenting. Why? Because they feared losing face in the eyes of others. So listen to this. Get, hear this with me. They'd rather live with some blockage in their relationship to the Lord that no one would ever see than live with the possibility of being judged and, and looking at the frowns of the sinners around them. They cared more about what the people around them thought than their relationship with the God of Israel. 
The Pharisees also placed heavy burdens on others while failing to live up to those standards themselves. The Pharisees labored to convert people to their own dead religion as opposed to pointing them in the direction of life-giving, sin-forgiving faith in the God of Israel. Pharisees were also jealous and protective of their sphere of influence and worked against slandering, maligning, and gossiping about those who violated, threatened, or infringed upon the territory they thought their own. Now, I want you to just notice, hopefully you notice, the Pharisees did all of these things purposefully. And that's the key. Because today it seems that any hypocrisy in a Christian or any effort by a Christian to exhort another to faith and obedience is seen as pharisaical. You've probably heard it, right? Christians are hypocrites. And the answer to that is, yes, we are. But we hate the fact that we are. We don't want to be. And when we lose the battle that we are fighting all day long, day in, day out, this battle against the flesh, when we lose that battle, when we fall into sin, we run to the Lord and we confess that sin and we repent of it. This is not the same as being one who purposefully passes themselves off as one thing while being something completely different internally in their heart and in their soul. There is a difference between the Pharisee who loads others down with burdens of their own creation and the Christian who out of love for God and love for neighbor and love for your soul exposes your sin, exposes my sin, and encourages repentance and faith. Those are two completely different things. One is a Pharisee, one is not. And the reason... We might cry Pharisee in our day is because there is an aversion to any sort of judgment in their lives. I mean, which one of us, don't put up your hands, but who of us loves to be judged? Who of us loves it when somebody comes alongside of us and tells us what we're doing wrong in our lives and what we need to change and what we need to repent of in order to become holy, more holy to the Lord and separated unto the Lord? For many of us, judgment like this is the major category by which to determine whether someone is a Pharisee or not. Judgment, meaning those verdicts and rulings and pronouncements and evaluations of our lives that we don't find particularly appealing or flattering. When these come our way, the cries might spring out of our own mouths. Pharisee! Pharisee! But is that what makes someone a modern-day Pharisee? Hopefully you're get, getting what I'm laying down here. No. Let's explore this a little bit more. Again, I swear we're going to move off, off this statement in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over the years, I've heard many paint these words, paint this series of woes, this bl these blistering denunciations that were pointed on this occasion at the scribes and Pharisees as being leveled against them because they are religious leaders with some degree of authority in Israel. As if the role of religious leader in and of itself is some sort of negative and while it's true that his harshest and most severe criticisms were indeed directed against the scribes and the Pharisees, it wasn't because they called Israelites to repentance and obedience to the Lord that Jesus rebuked them. Because insofar as they performed this task faithfully and rightly, we learned a few weeks ago in chapter 23, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said this, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. And even though this is the case, again, I'm going to repeat it again, it's not uncommon in the church to hear folks call each other Pharisees for speaking biblical truth and exhorting others to repentance. When Jesus said, when the Pharisees do this to you, insofar as they're correct, listen to them. And so you might hear, or you might have even said it yourself at some point, 
that people frowning upon and speaking negatively about those leaders, or you might have frowned upon and spoken negatively about those leaders who laboring to love the Lord, laboring to love God's people, actually urge those who profess to be Christians to live in accordance with, to live in submission to, to live in obedience to the clear word and command of God. I know I've heard a number of these faithful leaders in the Christian world labeled, with the, saddled with the label of Pharisee. As if, as if leaders and fellow believers admonishing and prodding one another to real holiness is something the scribes and Pharisees did. They didn't. We have lost sight of the intention and the purpose of Christ's interaction with the scribes and Pharisees if we use these interactions as a defense against ourselves being called to holiness of life. When we use these as our foundation for arguing about and dividing from those in our lives who love the Lord and love you and I enough to put themselves to put their reputations, to put their names, their comfort, and their relationship with you at risk to engage in the Christian duty of helping you and I by rebuking and exhorting us to be more like Jesus. I want you to just think about it for a second. Think about the risks. There is a reason that many of us in this room today would rather avoid the conflict than love our neighbor as ourselves by rebuking and admonishing and exhorting and encouraging, right? To appeal to another person living in and perhaps loving very much and being protective of their sin, to exhort such a person to leave that sin, to repent of what they're doing because it's evil, might lead to a fierce and angry response along with the slandering of your name. But this is exactly what God calls each and every one of us who love Him to do. Read, for example, the imperative, the obligation the Apostle Paul sets at every one of your doorsteps this morning. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Meaning, when a believer is caught, That word speaks to being surprised by or taken unaware by, speaks to someone who's overstepped the moral boundaries and limits prescribed by the Lord. The command is then that we who are spiritual, meaning those who believe in Christ, who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ, should restore him. That phrase restore expresses the practice of correcting somebody in order to bring them closer to completeness. Because sin, figuratively speaking, tears and slashes at us, leaving metaphorical open wounds that must be addressed. And so our restoring one another, according to this context, is like scouring a battlefield, finding those who've been ripped and torn by the swords of the enemy and binding up their wounds and helping the lacerated and broken by putting them back together. And we are to do this in a spirit of gentleness, says Paul. Meaning, when we entreat one another to holiness, we do it without pride, without reference to our own flesh, meek, mild, and even-tempered, not in passionate, rage-filled anger. And we do this because we love God with all of our hearts and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, had the scribes and the Pharisees employed themselves in this task, in calling the people of Israel to worship and to love the Lord in spirit and in truth, had their hearts been filled with love for the Lord as they shepherded the nation, I suppose Christ would have, instead of denouncing them, held them up as models to be imitated. Had the scribes and Pharisees lived like the prophets of old, pressing people to repentance and faith in the place of condemnations and woes, maybe there would have been blessings and encouragements. So what's the problem then? It's not that they were religious leaders with some degree of authority over the nation. No, it was that they were wicked and evil religious leaders who passed themselves off to the nation as good men, as caring and godly men, all the while they led the people astray and shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
That's what the first woe speaks to. Look at it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you would neither enter in yourselves nor allow those who would go in, who would enter, to go in. You see the sinister influence of the scribes and Pharisees in and over and among the people of Israel. Their example, their teaching, it actively shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Their example and their teaching barricades and blocks and obstructs people's way to the kingdom of heaven. And they did this by persisting in their proud, willful, knowing hypocrisy. A proud, willful, knowing hypocrisy that took people down with them. It's almost like the child who says, if I can't have it, no one can. Imagine for a second... Living in this day, being an average family in Israel in the days of the scribes and the Pharisees. Dad, you are a day laborer who provides for your family by the sweat of your brow. You work as hard as you can from sunup to sundown, from dusk till dawn to ensure that your family can eat the next day. And mom, you spend your days caring for and supporting the household and your work and your labors, labors are just as tiring, just as long as dad's. Neither of you have the time to read hundreds of scrolls on biblical and systematic theology, but you do the best you can. You read scripture faithfully, you attend synagogue each Saturday, you pray, you offer the prescribed sacrifices, you celebrate the festivals and the holy days on the Jewish calendar, but outside of that, you look to the scribes and you look to the Pharisees as examples of godly and faithful living. You listen to their teaching, you listen to their preaching, because after all, you think to yourself, well, these are the professionals, they must know what they're talking about. And you believe that they teach Believe what they teach and you strive to make life changes according to what they've instructed you. And here comes Jesus, the compassionate Savior and Lord that He is. He knows that the example that these scribes and these Pharisees are setting for the people, who are, that they are setting for these moms and dads and families, are leading them away from the kingdom. And for the sake of the people, Jesus clearly condemns them out in the open for everyone to hear. Because Matthew has already commented on the state of the people in Israel who have as their example the scribes and the Pharisees. Way back in Matthew 9, verse 36, we read, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this is because the shepherds in Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, while positioning themselves as godly men in the eyes of the people, were actually, as Jesus declared in John chapter 8, of their father the devil. John 8, 44. And their will is to do their father's desire. Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees children of the devil. In essence, what he is doing, he called them murderers and liars he judged their internal character as being much like the devil who parades around like an angel of light but is, in, in, is truly committed to stealing, killing, and destroying. These Pharisees, their external life masks from sight an evil, rebellious heart committed not to following Christ but to killing him. These were the leaders in the nation of Israel. And so any Israelite who might hope to please God with their lives, who looked to these scribes and Pharisees to figure out how to do so, when following their example, end up actually displeasing God as they do, because instead of obeying the Father, the patterns and the guides who have stepped in to be the leaders among them follow the ways of Satan and so lead their disciples in the same ways. You see how important godly leaders are to a people. These scribes and Pharisees, instead of, instead of pointing the way to the kingdom of heaven and conducting Israel in the direction of the Lord from a heart filled with love for the Lord, 
were instead false, blind hypocrites, as Jesus will say later in this chapter. They were, as Jesus says in verse 15, children of hell, who being unsaved themselves threw marbles and banana peels and landmines and anything else they could onto the pathway to the kingdom, causing those who would walk on it to stumble and to slip and to fall and to twist their ankles and to fall by the wayside. When all along they ought to have been clearing the obstacles off the path so people of Israel might walk unhindered in the direction of the kingdom. Again, imagine the scene. A large procession of people searching for the kingdom of heaven, wanting to know more about the God of Israel, to obey and to serve and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so they look to the scribes and the Pharisees to lead them on that path. And as the people are following them, their leaders, upon arriving at the gates, refuse to enter in themselves, but they do something even worse. They turn around to face those who have followed them thus far, only to look them in the eyes, shut the gate, and say, nobody's entering. This is what Jesus is illustrating here. This is what the Pharisees' leadership ends up like. See, the scribes and Pharisees were not themselves children of the kingdom, but they were in fact rebels against the Lord. And so all who follow their lead, all who look to them as spiritual leaders and godly men will be led astray by them. And in the end, will have the kingdom of heaven shut in their faces. And how is it that they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? First and foremost, by refusing to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by repudiating and scorning Christ's words to them concerning their need for repentance and faith and his words that refer to his identity as the Son of the living God. They refuse to listen to the prophetic words of John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, that he is the one sent by the Father to save every single human being who repents of their sin and believe in his name. And not only did they sneer at and disparage Jesus himself for speaking such truths, but they also actively worked to turn the crowds against him. And in whose direction did they actively seek to turn the crowd's attention? Their own. They sought to shift the affection of the peoples away from Christ and to themselves. They sought for themselves what rightly and only belongs to Jesus Christ, honor and praise and adoration. So again, picture the scene. Someone hears the words of Jesus and they want to know more about him. They are in some way drawn to him. And as they seek to learn more, some so-called representative of the Lord steps out into the path and stands between them and Christ and works subtly and overtly to turn that seeker's attention away from Jesus and onto themselves. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did to shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This is far more common in our day than you might think. There is a reason why... It's difficult these days when someone emails me asking me, my family member has moved to such and such city. Do you know a good church in that city? We are well past the days that I can just say, well, look, at here's the first church on the list. Just go to that one. Because who knows if what kind of leader is there? Who knows what they affirm? Who knows what gospel they preach? Who knows if it... You don't know, right? I don't want to send people to places that shut the kingdom in people's faces. And for these reasons, Jesus condemned these scribes and Pharisees in the hearing of the crowds because they were proud, because they were self-righteous, because their teaching and example actively prevented people from encountering the Lord by grace through faith in Christ. Their pride and self-righteousness left unchecked for centuries had developed into the major blockage in Israel to living out the great commandments. They became leaders known not for loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, but those fixated on me-centered, me-inclined, me-focused praise. 
Their efforts weren't aimed at helping others grow in their faith or assisting others in the worship of the Lord. No, they pursued the accolades for themselves. And for this reason, Jesus condemned them. Woe to you. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in who would enter to go in so hopefully you see that the pharisees of our day are not those who exhort you to live in obedience to Christ for his praise and for your greater joy while many might call such folks pharisees the act, the opposite is true the Pharisees would actually avoid such a task and actively dissuade you from such a task. The Pharisee is the one who in pride and self-righteousness and self-love sought to gather to himself the praise and admiration by living a hypocritical life, meaning living externally holy while being internally wicked. These first the, these words, this first woe, was directed against those tasked with stewarding and overseeing the spiritual health, the spiritual pulse of the nation of Israel's love for and worship of the Lord, but who instead of laboring for the people's growth up into the Lord, served themselves. This condemnation was, and it is to, uh, in this day, directed against those religious leaders and Christians who violate the sacred trust of spiritual oversight. Spiritual leaders are given to the church by God for a reason. Spiritual leaders in the church have a definite purpose, and when they walk outside or live outside of this purpose, it is incumbent upon you, the congregation and the elders, to chastise, rebuke, admonish, and correct that spiritual leader. Listen to Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul the Father gave apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This trust is violated in our own day by modern Pharisees who take upon themselves the mantle of leadership or the mantle of correction in the church but use those positions to relentlessly and repeatedly turn people's eyes in their direction. To increase and grow their own platforms. To increase and grow their own influence or their own bank accounts. There are some modern-day Pharisees littering our radio and television stations. Unless it's grace to you or something, just turn all radio preachers off. They litter our radio and television stations and promise their listeners, they guarantee to their followers, hey, if you give large amounts of money to our ministries and you do so in faith you will experience a financial breakthrough. A year of the Lord's favor in your own life when God returns to you your investment tenfold, a hundredfold. And what do these charlatans and liars and modern-day Pharisees do with your money? I did a little bit of research this week, poisoning my eyes by looking at some of their examples. And I saw one who thanked the Lord and praised the Lord for allowing him to purchase his third jet while another waved his hands in the air, praising God for not his first, second, third, or fourth, but his fifth six-figure Rolex. All the while, those who bought into the scam and sent their last dollars in hope that the Lord would make good on this promise, they continue to languish in poverty and pain. And where is that prosperity ministry when their promises return to that person unfulfilled? They've already moved on to the next person, trying to bilk them of their finances. This is a violation of the sacred trust of leadership. This is the modern-day Pharisee. These are those the Apostle Paul warned Pastor Timothy about. 
those who imagine godliness to be a means of gain. The trust of leadership is also breached by those who create personality cults around themselves. Just on a personal level, I always find it, I always find myself suspecting those leaders in the Christian church today who use their own names as the title for their ministries. I'm always a little bit suspect of that. The trust of leadership is, always, is also breached by those who promote and teach and publish heretical doctrines whose leadership is irresponsible and aimed at self-exaltation. We have a new field, well, it's not new, but over the last couple of hundred years, we've got this field in the church now called biblical scholarship. Biblical scholarship is the, the there's a bunch of scholars who are trying to make themselves uh, acceptable to the world's scholarship, try to find ways to get their names into the limelight by finding new things in the Bible or by questioning old things in the Bible or by causing uh, a stir by rejecting something in the Bible. But let me just say, if it's new, it's wrong. All right? That should be a mantra for all of us. If it's new, it's wrong. Listen to one of my favorites, J.C. Ryle, in a book aptly titled Old Paths. And he writes, because this, this was raging in his day, says, The name which I have selected will prepare the reader to expect no new doctrines in this volume. It is simple, unadulterated, old-fashioned theology. It contains nothing but the old path in which the apostolic Christians, the reformers, the best churchmen for the last 300 years, and the best evangelical Christians of the present day have persistently walked from these, day, from these paths, I see no reason to depart. They are often sneered at and ridiculed as old-fashioned, worn-out, powerless in the 19th century. Be it so, none of these things move me. The longer I live, the more I am convinced that the world needs no new gospel. As some profess to think, I am thoroughly persuaded that the world needs nothing but a bold, full, unflinching teaching of the old paths. The heart of man is the same in every age. The spiritual medicine which it requires is the same. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leaders who violate the sacred trust usually will take the best resources for themselves while leaving the flock to suffer. Such leaders will turn the eyes away from the Lord and refocus them towards themselves. They become condescending, self-indulgent, petty, vain, seeking elevated status and increased public reputation. All the while, the flock, the people that our Lord cares so much about, languish for lack of sound biblical instruction and counsel by one who is devoted to the Lord. There are oh so many religious leaders who, like the Pharisees of old, abuse their positions in order to take from others, in order to feed some lust or some passion in themselves, who hope to fulfill their desire for more power or more adoration or more money, and sometimes even worse. There are far too many under-shepherds who'd rather tickle the ears of the people who don't actually care to learn, to know, to teach, or to have the demands of God's law applied to them. While the religious leader among God's people is charged, as Paul wrote to Timothy, listen to this, 2 Timothy 4, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the, uh, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word, meaning herald it, announce it, proclaim loudly the truth of the word. Be ready, meaning always be accessible, available, standing at the ready for this particular service of preaching the word. But also, be at the ready with the word to show people their guilt, to expose their sin and their transgression, to convict them, to rebuke, to admonish, to warn with stern force and with obvious disapproval for their sin, but exhorting them and urging them and imploring them to repent and return to the Lord. Now, we all full well know that such leadership is not always welcomed with open arms, is it? 
And for this reason, unfaithful leaders rise up knowing that a number of professing Christians will turn away from this type of Timothy-type leadership in favor of, as the Apostle Paul continues, a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Meaning there is coming a time, which I think we find ourselves in today, when people will not endure, meaning they will not consent to listening to sound, that word actually means healthy, healthy teaching, but will instead accumulate or heap up for themselves stacks or piles of teachers, like pancakes, who affirm and agree with what they want to believe, even if what they want to believe is clearly called sinful, wicked, and abominable by the word of God. Instead of faithful preachers like Timothy, godly men who take seriously their charge to preach the word of God soundly, many will cast them off in search of preachers who declare unhealthy, perverse, and sick distortions of God's word that suits their passions, which leads them to turn away from listening to the truth, according to Paul, meaning they reject the truth, they wander off into myths, into fables, they begin to call evil good and good evil. And you see these teachers who rise up and scratch the itching ears of those wandering away into myths. These are the real Pharisees. They, by their deeds, by their teaching, by their self-centered hypocrisy, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. As they themselves refuse to enter and they don't allow anyone who is following them to enter as well. Because that would mean less eyes on them. But when they, like the Pharisees, find and secure, verse 15, a proselyte or a convert to their way of living, in this context, going back into the text, the time of the text, this usually meant a Gentile who would hear the word of God and is then brought into conformity with the Pharisaic rules and regulations. The scribes and the Pharisees, look at verse 15, traveled across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Generally speaking, Judaism was not a missionary religion. However, in the first century, a number of Pharisees took a liking to the conversion of the Gentiles because the more they could convert people to their particular brand of Pharisaism, the more eyes were on them. And so they zealously pursued such converts and they went around proselytizing, a word that means trying to convert, and they spent much effort doing so. And as they did, they tended to create two separate groups of people. The first was the proselyte of the gate, meaning those who appreciated the God of Israel but didn't want to follow through on certain things that those who would become fully devoted Pharisees had to do. Many older men, for example, didn't like the idea of being circumcised in their old age. So they sat at the gate without fully entering in. You read about these in the New Testament when you hear the words devout or God-fearing. These would have been those proselytes at the gate. The second type of proselyte was the proselyte of righteousness, the convert who underwent everything, all ceremonies and rituals to become a fully observant Pharisee convert. But the Pharisees, seeking to create these converts, they were not seeking to win people for and to the Lord, but instead seeking to win people to their own traditions and their own ideas. It wasn't a call from sin to salvation, but a call from your old traditions and views to our traditions and views. And in so doing, they converted people to their same condition. And what was their condition? A child of hell. And as a result, according to Jesus, the proselyte or the convert of these Pharisees was actually worse off now than before the Pharisees had sunk their claws into them because, again, look at verse 15, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You make another zealous for wicked and rebellious hypocrisy. And they become like the ones who converted them, only worse. They become children of hell, meaning those who belong to hell, those who are worthy of and belonging to and headed for hell. This is what, this is what describes all who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, but in a unique and extra way, these Pharisees, these converted Gentiles. What the people truly require, what we all truly require, isn't conversion to some dead, defiled, powerless set of traditions, opinions, and rules, but deliverance from the law, from, or, or from our sin, by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, according to these first two condemnations, the Pharisees are those who obstruct the pathway to the kingdom, who shut the door in people's faces, who neither enter in themselves nor allow others who would enter to enter. And when they go out and they convert someone to their way of thinking and living, they don't play a hand in the salvation of a person's soul, but instead leave the convert to their way of thinking worse off than before. So think about your life for a moment. I know I've said this before, but we can often become quite like the Pharisees in numerous ways, can't we? I have heard and I have witnessed professing Christians who are more zealous to win people, to win another person to their political viewpoints than they are to win them to the Savior. I have witnessed professing Christians who spend more of their verbal energy pulling others down into the weeds of this world to anger and anxiety and signing up for their causes than they do in helping others to look up to Christ, the King seated on His throne, who rules and reigns over everything and because He reigns instills confidence and peace in His people as we sojourn on this earth, which is, by the way, not our home. We are exiles seeking to bring as many people to the heavenly city as possible. So don't confuse the issue. The Pharisee is not the God-fearing fellow believer who, while imperfect in themselves and at times hypocritical, when necessary, calls us to repentance, confession, and contrition for our sin. The Pharisee is the one who doesn't care anything about that. The Pharisee is the one who will leave you alone in your sin so long as you adore them, so long as you flatter them. The Pharisee is the one who, causes, who cares more about signing you up for their team with regards to the world's issues than they are with leading you to salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are here today unsaved and you've thought to yourself at some point in life, those Christians, man, they're such a bunch of hypocrites. Yes, yes we are. But we don't want to be that way. We hate that we are, but yes we are. But don't let that excuse get in the way of your seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in no way, shape, or form is or ever has been or ever will be a hypocrite himself. Christ forgives hypocrites. If you are here saved today, you are a testament to that forgiving wonder that is found in Jesus Christ. If you are unsaved, know this, you're a hypocrite too. You need Jesus. You need your sins forgiven. And you can be forgiven today if you repent of your sin and believe in his name. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We honor you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for ensuring that these woes were recorded in the Word so that we might learn from them. We might learn about the Pharisees who they were leveled against, but also learn how to keep from being of a similar type in our own life. May anyone here who doesn't know you turn to you in faith. May everyone here who does know you commit to, by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in us, to becoming less like the Pharisees and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.